Good evening. President Biden meets with Russian leader Vladimir Putin as military tensions rise in Ukraine. A call to end missile sales to Saudi Arabia. The attorney general sues Texas over racial gerrymandering and have southern courts been infiltrated by the daughters of the Confederacy. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. Face-to-face for over two hours, President Joe Biden and Russia's Vladimir Putin squared off in a secure video call today. The United States threatening that Russia would experience enormous harm to its economy if it invades Ukraine. Biden said National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told President Putin directly that if Russia further invades Ukraine, the United States and our European allies would respond with strong measures. I don't know if I would say bracing for since we currently have rotational deployments in the Baltics. We conduct exercises on a regular basis in both Poland and Romania. The presence of American military service members in rotational fashion in these countries is not something new. The question here is not that about whether or not the United States is going to send American service members to the territory of our NATO allies. We do that as a matter of course. The question is, what additional capabilities can we provide to ensure that they feel strong and confident in their own sovereignty and territorial integrity? It is those additional capabilities that are on the table in those countries uh, should Russia move in Ukraine in, in a more decisive way. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Putin came into the meeting seeking guarantees from Biden that the NATO military alliance will never expand to include Ukraine. The Americans and their NATO allies have said in advance Putin's request was a non-starter. Meanwhile, United States Envoy Victoria Nuland told the Senate Foreign Relations Committee today a Russian invasion of Ukraine would jeopardize a controversial pipeline between Russia and Germany. She said our expectation is that the pipeline, known as Nord Stream 2, will be suspended. Sullivan said Biden and Putin had a good discussion on the Iran issue and called it an area where the two countries could cooperate. David Gibbs is professor of history at the University of Arizona. An invasion of Ukraine, he says, is probably not imminent. But he adds, with 2,000 nuclear weapons between the two super rivals, the moment is dangerous. A dangerous situation, but no, I don't think there's any great likelihood of Russia invading the Ukraine. That would be an enormous military task at great disadvantage. But Russia at a huge disadvantage. It would probably tie them down for many years and uh, damage their economy uh, probably to a greater extent than the invasion of Afghanistan did in um, 1979 to the Soviet Union. I do think there's an emphasis, though, on trying to hype this as a uh, dangerous situation, and that there does seem to be a desire to sort of ratchet up the tensions with Russia by the United States and by NATO. What do you think is behind that? I mean, Russia, Russia, Russia. The origins of this conflict go back to the year 1990, back to the days of the Soviet Union, when East and West Germany were about to reunify, and the United States wanted to support reunification of Germany, and the Soviet Union then under Gorbachev was in a position to block it. They feared a reunified Germany. And one thing they feared also was that NATO would expand into former East Germany and get closer to Russia and the Soviet Union. And that was their fear. And the American Secretary of State, James Baker, assured them publicly and privately that if Russia agreed not to block German reunification, the United States would never expand NATO. The phrase Secretary Baker used was not one inch eastward. Okay, not one inch eastward. That was the promise. 
Uh, Gorbachev accepted that. He declined to block the reunification of Germany, allowed it to proceed, and the United States immediately violated the agreement by uh, bringing NATO into former East Germany and then expanding NATO throughout most of Eastern Europe and all the way to the borders of post-communist Russia. There's also been a lot of effort to and a lot of discussion about possibly bringing the Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. This is something the Russians see very negatively and see that as a threat to their security, and I think understandably so. There seems to be 100,000 Russian troops parked right outside Ukraine's borders. What message do you think he's trying to send? The saber-rattling has been mutual, and if anything, I think it has been more from the side of NATO. Again, the issue here, the United States wants to bring, or seems to want to bring, Ukraine into NATO. And that would be like, you know, Russia establishing an alliance with Mexico and establishing bases in Mexico and America's borders. And everyone knows the United States would never allow that and would see that as a threat. I think the Russians see this situation exactly the same way. And so I would see this as... Uh, a response to an extended provocation by the United States and NATO against Russia. And by the way, I don't think this is seen this way as a threat just by Putin, but I think the most of the Russian people see it as a threat as well. And let me ask you about Nord Stream 2, because that's happening at the exact same time, so it's like doubling the amount of information and news that's going on right now. Trump was trying to impede the construction, the completion of Nord Stream 2. Biden has allowed it to proceed. The context here is that people have often said that Trump was Putin's best friend and so on. That's really nonsense, actually. Putin was had a much more negative relationship, actually, with Trump than he did with Biden. If you just look at the record, and Nord Stream 2 clearly spells that out. This meeting that happened today between Putin and uh, Biden, do you think something good will come of it? Talking is always better than fighting. There is a real danger here that if the conversation becomes too adversarial, of course there is a danger of accidental nuclear war or something like that. People often forget both sides of a thousand active nuclear warheads. Uh, you know, this is extremely dangerous as a situation. I was reading recently an account by William Perry who was the Secretary of Defense under Clinton. It was widely discussed in the Clinton White House about how Russia will see NATO as a threat. And the response from most people, including, I guess, from Clinton himself, was that who cares? The Russians are losers, and we shouldn't have to negotiate with losers, and we shouldn't have to make any accommodation for their feelings or their needs. Well, I think the result is what we're seeing right now, which is a real danger here of actual combat. David Gibbs is professor of history at the University of Arizona. Before the call, a Kremlin spokesperson said U.S.-Russian relations are overall in a rather dire straight state, adding Russia has never planned to attack anyone. Characterizing the Biden-Putin call as a working conversation during a very difficult period when escalation of tensions in Europe is off the scale, extraordinary, he said. Among the other dividing the other issues dividing Russia and the United States is an underwater natural gas pipeline in the Baltic Sea known as Nord Stream 2, one of several pipelines delivering Russian natural gas to Germany. Deeply unpopular in the United States, former President Donald Trump sanctioned Russia to stop its construction. Those sanctions were lifted by Biden. Today, Texas Republican Ted Cruz blasted Biden for allowing the pipeline to go through. Putin didn't just wake up recently and decide, decide to invade Ukraine. He's wanted to invade Ukraine for years. He did so in 2014, but he stopped short of full invasion. Why? Because the Ukrainian energy infrastructure was necessary to get the Russian gas to market. Nord Stream 2 is all about building an alternative avenue to get the Russian gas to Europe 
So then the Russian tanks can ride into Ukraine. And that's Ted Cruz. Oil and gas interests in the United States have opposed Nord Stream for years, instead supporting a, a ocean gas terminal where American natural gas could be sent by ship to Germany and offloaded. Uh, the cheaper and more secure method through Russia has really been uh, the source of the conflict between the two. In related news, later this week, Biden will meet Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to discuss next steps in the diplomatic maneuvering. And a Saudi-led coalition fighting Iran-backed rebels in Yemen accelerated airstrikes on the capital and elsewhere in the conflict-stricken country in recent weeks as government forces advance on the West Coast in the key province of Marib. Government forces, meanwhile, seize the major district in Hadera, Areda province and other areas on Yemen's western coast. Yemen's war began with the 2014 takeover of Sana'a by the Houthis, who control much of the country's north. The Saudi-led coalition entered the war in 2015, determined to restore the government and oust the rebels. Fueled by arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, the war is a stalemate, often called the world's most dire humanitarian crisis. The United States is included in the most recent defense spending authorization, a $650 million weapons sale to Saudi Arabia that would help them fight the war. The sale is opposed by a bipartisan coalition in Congress, including Senators Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders. Hassan Al-Tayab is legislative director for Middle East Policy for the Friends Committee on National Legislation, which is among the signatories to the letter signed by peace groups supporting the bill to cut the arms sales. He spoke with WBAI. Administration early on in their you know, tenure in office here said that they were going to end U.S. support for offensive operations in the Saudi-led coalition's war in Yemen. And unfortunately, the definition of offensive and defensive is really in question. You, you know, obviously, I consider the blockade and ongoing enforcement of that blockade an offensive operation, but it's unclear if the Biden administration does. We've done a lot of advocacy. There's been a lot of People on the Hill, over 100 members of Congress uh, that have said the blockade needs to end. But unfortunately, the Biden administration is trying to greenlight $650 million in new weapon sales to the Saudi-led coalition. And we haven't seen uh, you know, important concessions such as lifting the blockade. So I think this is just the wrong time to be sending the signal of impunity. When the president says we're limiting this to defensive weapons, can I turn to Miriam Webster and look it up and see what he's doing? No, this is kind of a red herring argument. It sort of goes nowhere. Once you sell weapons to any country or hand them off, it's really hard to say what's going to happen with them. We've seen a really disturbing pattern of Saudi Arabia using U.S. weaponry in terrible, terrible ways. They've given U.S. weapons to al-Qaeda in Yemen through the course of the war in Yemen. We've seen them use U.S. weapons to bomb civilian infrastructure and blow up humanitarian aid cargo ships in the Sana Airport runway early in the war. We've seen them attack weddings, hospitals, healthcare infrastructure, agricultural infrastructure, economic infrastructure, and kill tens of thousands of civilians. Isn't Saudi Arabia the country that's invading and attacking Yemen, the much smaller country? There's a complex history to the Yemen war. What's happening is Saudi is not letting planes land at Sana Airport that could be delivering critical humanitarian aid. 
It's not letting people leave that need a medical evacuation. It's not letting fuel through the ports of entry on the Red Sea ports, including Hadeda and Salif Port. There's Houthi obstruction and Houthi bad behavior going on as well, which contributes to the humanitarian crisis. But a large driver of this crisis is the ongoing Saudi blockade. The airstrikes are obviously doing a lot of damage, too, and killing people. But preventing the flow of these critical commodities into Yemen is the main thing driving the humanitarian crisis. And Yemen is considered by the U.N. the world's worst humanitarian crisis on the planet. We've got 16 million people living on the edge of famine right now. Usually when there's a humanitarian crisis, there's at least a lot of talk about it. What is it about this struggle that you've seen so much silence? It's a horrible tragedy. Yemen has been considered or called the forgotten war for years at this point. I will say that there has been definitely an uptick as Congress has taken action like the vote this evening. I believe that there's going to be a vote this evening to block the $650 million weapon sale to Saudi Arabia. And that is really how we get this back on the radar is when Congress stands up and uses tools like these resolutions to block new weapon sales, like the War Powers Act, enforce the question and that's typically when we see there be attention to the humanitarian crisis is when congress takes action the question is can we continue to turn a blind eye to saudi human rights abuses and is that even protecting saudi arabia as we've continued to sort of turn a blind eye to saudi behavior we've seen this whole region become destabilized and the best way if you do really care about saudi defense if that is your main purpose for like pushing or supporting or not supporting this legislation, you got to recognize that the best way to protect Saudi from the Houthis or any of these destabilizing activities is to end the Saudi involvement and blockade in Yemen. Hassan Al-Tayab is legislative director for Middle East Policy for the Friends Committee on National Legislation. And in the nation's capital, activists disrupted some rush hour traffic around the U.S. Capitol today morning in the morning to demand congressional action on a host of issues, including climate change, immigration, racial justice and D.C. statehood. And shortly before noon, a large contingent of immigration rights protesters with the group CASA began marching on Capitol Hill and 40 protesters were arrested at a sit in. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spoke demanding a decision by the House that a decision by the House parliamentarian to block a vote on path to legalization for immigrants in the House um, be overturned. Uh, it's a technicality that the uh, parliamentarian is using, and uh, AOC claims that that technicality could be changed with a vote of Congress if they just allow it through. And here she is speaking today. Where we are at is that the Senate needs to step up, override the parliamentarian, okay? The parliamentarian is not elected. It is not an elected position. And the parliamentarian has been overridden and dismissed in the past. We will not surrender our power to an unelected parliamentarian. We need to use our power to help the people. And so the Senate, our demand is for the Senate to override the parliamentarian, include a full path to citizenship. 
And that's AOC. In related news, New York City is on the cusp of becoming the largest, uh, one of the largest places in the country to give non-citizens the right to vote in local elections. Legally documented voting age non-citizens comprise nearly one in nine of the city's seven million voting age inhabitants. Under a bill nearing approval, some 800,000 non-citizens would be allowed to cast ballots in elections to pick the mayor, city council members, and other municipal office holders. Non-citizens still wouldn't be able to vote for president or members of Congress in federal races or in the state elections to pick the governor, judges, and legislators. The measure has broad support within the city council, which is expected to ratify it on Thursday. Mayor Bill de Blasio has raised concerns about the wisdom and legality of the legislation, but said he won't veto it. And the Justice Department sued Texas yesterday over its new redistricting maps, saying the plans discriminate against minority voters, particularly Latinos, who have fueled the state's population boom. The lawsuit claims a Republican-controlled state violated part of the Voting Rights Act in drawing new district boundaries for its congressional delegation and state legislature. It's the Biden Justice Department's first legal action challenging a state's map since states began redrawing their maps this year to account for population changes. Attorney General Merrick Garland made the announcement. The complaint we filed today alleges that Texas has violated Section 2 by creating redistricting plans that deny or abridge the rights of Latino and black voters to vote on account of their race. And that's Merrick Garland, a spokesperson for Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, condemned the lawsuit. The case is the second civil rights, civil rights lawsuit the Biden administration has filed against Texas recently. Last month, it sued to overturn the state's new voting law, part of a wave of GOP-backed voting changes, claiming the new restrictions would disenfranchise citizens in the state. And in Washington as well, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene slammed what she called the outrageous treatment of Capitol riot defendants in Washington, D.C.'s main jail uh, today and urged lawmakers on the House Select Committee investigating the events of January 6th to see the facility for themselves. Uh, she was joined by Matt Gates and uh, and other conservative lawmakers and uh, made a point. They, they seem to all make the same point that uh, the uh, mostly white protesters were being discriminated against in the Washington, D.C. jails for being white. They were isolated in a separate wing of the jail where they are abused, where they are ridiculed, where they are mocked because of their political beliefs and because of January 6th and because of the color of their skin. The January 6th defendants that I spoke to and asked questions to in the jail said that they, if they have a public defender, they said their public defenders hate them. And they're being represented because they're poor and they can't afford to pay a lawyer. And they're being represented by public defenders that call them white supremacists, tell them they have to denounce President Trump, tell them they have to denounce their political views, want them to watch videos and read books that basically is critical race theory training in order for them to have this public defender represent them. When they're being force-fed gluten food and they have celiac disease, and so the food that they eat makes them sick every single day to the point where they will go days without eating. Other inmates are telling me the most verbally abused person in there happens to be black, that he has caught more flack than any of the white defendants. And it shouldn't matter about skin color. Paul Gosar of Arizona, pardon me, and uh, also joining the news conferences, Matt Gates of Florida. And interesting, they all harped on that issue of the uh, way they were treated in the jail. Matt Gates, of course, you might know, has been uh, under investigation for uh, taking underage uh, girls 
outside of state lines. And the other uh, members, several of the other members, including Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Paul Gosar, have been stripped of many of their powers for uh, threats against liberals, including uh, Ilan Omar and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as we've reported here on WBA over the last couple of weeks. Um, and another case, this time coming from uh, Tennessee, Pulaski, Tennessee, the home, the birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, it turns out that the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals is granting a new trial to an African-American defendant named Tim Gilbert following his conviction for aggravated assault and other charges. He was not only uh, judged by an all-white jury in a county that's 11 percent African-American, but the jury made their decision in a room festooned with Confederate symbols, a portrait of Jefferson Davis, president of the rebelling Confederate States of America, looks on the room with a large frame Confederate flag. Uh, there was no accidental design. The room was uh, maintained and named for the Confederate Defending United Daughters of the Confederacy, a group that lost its congressional supported patent for its insignia in 1993 after a majority of senators uh, began to see it as a racist organization. The Daughters of the American uh, – pardon me, the Daughters of the Confederacy are uh, well known for putting pro-Confederate monuments and other plaques and other notifications at battle scenes and other places across America, including Harper's Ferry and uh, among the target of many protesters who want to see those things taken down. We spoke with Clarence Lusain, a professor of political science at Howard University and author of the forthcoming $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman versus Andrew Jackson and the Future of American Democracy. Uh, he says that, um, that it, it was no surprise to him. Pretty horrific. The story in the Washington Post and New York Times actually tend to underplay the significance of the Confederacy in that particular situation. Not only is there a picture of a framed Confederate flag and a portrait of Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, but even before you enter the room on the door itself is the insignia of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And they basically have sponsored the room, apparently going all the way back to the 1930s. Also in the room is a portrait of General John Brown, who was a Confederate general. So it's pretty inescapable, the theme and the message that's being sent. And you cannot imagine that there's a room in that courthouse where there's a picture of Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey sponsored by Black Lives Matter, right? This would not happen. So it's really critical that this case came before the appeal court and that they did rule that there were multiple violations from the 14th Amendment to the 6th Amendment in terms of a defendant being able to not only have a fair trial, but to be judged by a jury in a fair and impartial manner. How widespread do you think this is? I suspect that upon research, we would find that there has been opposition. I can't imagine that over decades, the number of African-Americans who have went into that room as jurors or in other capacities in the court have not felt some degree of assault by the fact that the court itself is giving a stamp of legitimacy to the Confederacy. This case highlights and brings out what has been you know, over decades and decades and decades. And this is in 
Skills County, Tennessee. The court itself is in Pulaski, Tennessee. That's famous for being the founding of the Ku Klux Klan in 1865. In December 1865, after the Civil War, there was a meeting. Nathan Forrest and others who were the founders came together and founded the Klan. So in that particular city, there's just that long, long, long history. I suspect that these Confederate organizations, either the United Daughters of the Confederacy or the, I think there's a group called the Sons of the Confederacy, they have had significant influence certainly in the early part of the 20th century, but even up until recently where they were able to have their signature on license plates. Now, all of that began to fall apart as the demonstrations and protests against the Confederate flag, particularly after the killings in South Carolina, the nine people who were killed in Emmanuel Church. That pushed a lot of the sort of public-facing Confederacy, a lot of that was taken down. But it certainly has existed for decades and decades and decades. Even in the deep parts of the South, people are rethinking some of these things? I think they are, but there's opposition as well. And what we've seen, as intense as the protests have been and successful, and that hundreds of symbols of the Confederacy, from monuments to namings of buildings, have been taken down, we're also seeing a reaction and that there's the surge in white nationalism and white supremacy is something that we have to deal with. Anything like that? Part of it, the decision had to do with, of course, the Confederate room, but also the fact that there was an all-white jury. This is in a county that's about a quarter black. And we see that, again, all over the country. There have been Supreme Court cases and state cases that have said consistently all white juries are discriminatory. We saw that most recently in the case of the murder of Amman Arbery, where there was an 11 whites, one black jury. And even the judge noted that that was discriminatory. And so that's also an issue. So even if they got rid of this Confederate celebrating room, it doesn't address these other concerns that, again, are national and have to be taken care of. Clarence Hussein is a professor of political science at Howard University and author of the forthcoming $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman versus Andrew Jackson and the Future of American Democracy. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.